This is Lead with a Question. I think success isn't really something that happens to you. It's something that you attract because of the core principles and the core values that you bring to the table that is embedded in truth and everlasting principles. And you start attracting the things that other people admire and truly admire. The goodness of people find that person or that entity or that organization. And they're like, hey, can I be around that person? (laughs) Then all of a sudden, you're not alone anymore. Hi, I'm Rob Callen. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leaning into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen, Connect with guests who embody these principles, and whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. Today, we connect with a man whose life is a collage of influences, from his roots in India, to his love of sport, to his exclusion as a kid, to the traditional path others had seemingly mapped out for him. But rather than simply accept or reject those forces, he's folded them into a sense of self that has allowed him to lift and serve others through co-creation, whether NBA coaches, business leaders, or the children of sex workers. He'll help us explore the question, how can you attract your best future right now? A conversation with James Matthews on this episode of Lead with a Question. I'm an unusual person where I'm born of Indian immigrants here in the U.S., uh, lived here. I got brown skin, but red, white, and blue flowing inside of me and grew up knowing I had Indian heritage, not completely understanding it, but being very American. Um, And then when I was 11 years old, my parents did the opposite to what people did. They moved back to the little village where my dad grew up because he was so inspired by the education that he got that uh, my mom and him wanted to go back to the village where uh, he grew up and started a school. So I went from modern world to a village where honestly, Rob, the first year and a half that we lived, we didn't have even running water in the house. We, I had to go outside to take a bath. I had to, draw the water from the well, learn to douse myself with one bucket, pull up the next bucket so soap wouldn't get in there, do the shampoo outside, and then use one more bucket to and then sleep on the floor while we built our house. It took two years to build our house. And so early days, I went from, there's a term for uh, Indian 
born immigrants in the U.S. And we call ourselves Desis, which means a person from the Indian subcontinent. So ABCD means American born confused Desi. <laughs> so in the early <laughs> days here, I had to figure out how do I walk around with this brown skin and be American? And then when I got to India, I thought, okay, at least now I'm Indian, right? We're all going to be able to be one group of people. But they called me Sahib, which was the British term for white person, <laughs> because I didn't know the language. Even when I ate chicken curry, my mom would make, I dipped it in water to get all the spices <laughs> off so I could eat the chicken. So my behavior was very um, red, white, and blue, if that makes sense. So I had to learn early on to understand who I was, understand where I, uh, the topography of people, you know, environment and learn to find a place to help others accomplish their goals so I could just even fit in. <laughs> so that's where all of this started for me. And I've carried that through throughout my career. Um, one of the things that I knew worked early on is I was an athlete. And what happened when we moved to India, uh, I'm uh, generationally, our family is Christian, but India is mostly non-Christian. Uh, when, when I played sports and I had birthday parties at my house, uh, my dad is the one who first noticed that, hey, there are Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Christians coming for James's birthday party. But if we went to other family members' house, it would be people just like us, Christian. And so he saw that the medium of sport and then later I saw music and entrepreneurship. If you really bought into that and excelled at that or are passionate about it, then you can make a lot of friends. <laughs> so uh, co-creating as a teammate in sport, co-creating, writing music and, and performing together uh, was early ways for me to find uh, a way to fit in. That makes sense. That's great. Yeah. So you had these very... I'd say unique experiences that exposed you to these sort of liminal spaces where people from different perspectives could come together and, you know, be able to participate fully in the process, even though maybe on paper, they didn't fit the same profile per se. Yeah, hundred percent. Like when I first went to India, I was defiant. Like everybody would say the Indian national anthem, not, not the pledge, the equivalent to the pledge of allegiance. And They'd raise their hand up and say the pledge. And I would put my hand up saying, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm very defiant. Like, I wanted to bring my, my point of view into their world. But, you know, as 12 and 13 year olds can do, like, I was very, it was very clear that I was coming to their world and that their world would dominate. And so I, I had to learn to, um, early on to fit in. And I think when I eventually came back to the U.S., I realized the rootedness of who I was as an Indian and the earthiness of who I was as, man, there's value from every part of the world. And then how have those early experiences influenced the way that you have approached your career? I, I think there's just a patience there that uh, it it's both the strength and a weakness. like. I'm, I'm patient about first trying to understand, you know, uh, Stephen Covey had this saying or seek to 
understand before being understood. And I think I learned that early on. And when I read the book, I'm like, yes. <laughs> and so that just became a default of mine. And it's great if I'm supposed to do the work of pioneering stuff. It's not good if you need something done tomorrow. <laughs> you know, so uh, I learned early on, like, yeah, let me let me be the one that goes out ahead of everybody because I got a little freedom to discover adventure. And it wasn't a rebellious spirit as much as I want to understand spirit, curiosity spirit. Yeah. And then more recently, you've had some experiences at some organizations that people probably will have heard of. And so can you tell us more about that? Yeah, no, of course. Um, some of the most recent work is related to those childhood things. I left healthcare and started trying to experimenting. How could sport be a medium that brings people together? You know, uh, especially over the last few years, don't like the messiness of the pandemics and the politics and the questions of do Black Lives Matter, or do they not, or do you wear a mask, or do you not, the divisiveness that's going on. I just had always thought sport could bring people together. They're not asking your political views or religious views. And so got a really great opportunity to work with the NBA in India uh, on a project that they were forming called the Junior MBA and got a chance to pilot that in this little city that we lived in, Kochi, India. And did well, applied these principles saying, hey, what is the MBA's mission here? And how can it benefit the kids and the schools here? And how can it advance the love of the game? How can it possibly get kids to the hardwood floors uh, here in the US uh, from remote places of the world? Uh, it was a very intriguing project, but the MBA had very specific business goals. Uh, but they were still very deeply passionate about the grassroots goals. It's just that they needed partners who cared about both goals. You couldn't take care of the grassroots goals and not reach the business goals. So we ended up working with them on several projects that ended up having the first guys ever drafted to the NBA G League came through our little project. So Paul Preet Singh got drafted in 2016. Then Amjo Singh got drafted to the G League Oklahoma City Thunder in 2017. And around that time, I thought, huh, I wish these guys had access to what they now are experiencing when they were 14, 15, 16. Right. So then our family decided to take a plunge and say, is there a place in the US that we could find a safe place to bring 14, 15 year olds that it wasn't this meat market of pay us $10,000, $15,000 and your MBA dreams are going to come true. But it would, it would stay close to the earthiness of the grassroots, like of love of the game and potential, the potential that you could reach. And so we found a place in Ohio, um, Athletes in Action has a 200 acre campus, place for 300 people to stay and work with them in 2017 and moved here the early part of 2018 and volunteered. They they gave us their space. They said, this is a great thing. Of course, we would love to uh, provide a place for this. It, it's aligned with their mission. And we experimented, brought athletes over, all of them under six feet. All of them got college scholarships and decided to stay and keep doing more. And so now we partner with the NBA Coaches Association through an app called eCoach. And 
they're like, hey, uh, you're not going to be face to face with everybody, but you could be face to face with everybody digitally. And so there's a app called eCoach that the MBA Coaches Association, all the coaches in the MBA are uh, videotaping the same drills and concepts and teaching that they would do on the hardwood court with their players, but in language for younger players. So now how do you take that collection, create lesson plans, work with the coach in a remote place? And we started doing that in India and then it grew to the Maldives and then to Italy and then to Dubai and Israel. And it was amazing. Like one time we're working with a coach. This was last May, April, May, working with a coach in Israel with his kids on the screen. And that's when the missiles started coming in from Gaza. <laughs> and they would say, wait, two minutes. We'll be back in two minutes. We're doing assessments. And we'd say, okay, you hear sirens in the background and they'd leave. And they'd come back and say, okay, where did we leave off? And I'm like, wait, did, did you guys want wow. to talk about what's going on? <laughs> oh, no, no, this is normal. <laughs> is there something you need to take care of? Yeah. yeah. They, they took, this was their escape, right? This, this is a, no, we want to be right here. Because and they took their phones out and showed they had I forgot iron domes or something like that the anti missile things in their backyards, and I was like, "Wow, <laughs> we get to right now be a place of refuge for and how sport like you feel like even in Ukraine right now, oh, who cares about sport? You know what?" <laughs> Sport might be the escape that they need. Music might be the escape that they need in this moment because nothing else makes sense. But sport, because of the constraints and the rules and, you know, you, you, it's something known, right? And so... So true. Yeah. So I, uh, we've learned that throughout the pandemic, like just being able to do live training uh, with these coaches and with people far in faraway places, it wasn't about sport. It was about what was happening underneath. Wow. In this divisive world, look at the screen. There are people from this place and we don't even know what religion we are. We're all different colors. Can't we do this when we flip off the screen and go outside? Yeah, we can. Cause we can do it here. We can do it there. So that to me is co-creating without saying, let's go to a classroom and learn about how diversity and inclusion and everything else. So I feel like right. we've really got to find these mediums that bring people together. And I think entrepreneurship is one of them. And that's what drew me to um, Ian and Chris was like Bravecore and the principles around co-creation. It's like, yes, everybody needs to know to do this. So how, how can everybody learn to do this, still be who they are, have their convictions, but still be able to be together with people and move humanity or business or whatever you do forward. Yeah. And, and James, you're uh, in more brave core than we are really. Um, <laughs> and we, we appreciate that about you. I mean, really uh, just the depth of the things that you've worked on and, and, you know, accomplished and just lived right embodied. And you talked a little earlier about the focus on, you know, the early builds, right. Of that, that's that kind of new frontier disrupting and, and then also the time and patience required to do that. Like that feels like there's tension between those two things, right? And then also, right, the co-creation necessary to have that larger impact. And I'm curious, like other experiences you've had too, where you felt that tension and then how did you work you know, together to move things forward, even though you had that 
you know, squeeze, I'd say, you know, kind of the, the, of the status quo or the traditional to say, Hey, we've got to still move things forward. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, um, we know we need to change. Like uh, when the pandemic hit, I think everybody was saying, how do we return back to normal? And I'm like, I don't want to get back to the way I was before the pandemic because then I learned nothing from the pandemic. Like, but I want to, so I went through like an intentional process and I feel like, uh, there's that tension between observing and gathering a lot of stuff. Like if there's a criticism, like most people who don't understand that design process or that creative process is like, man, you're in a lot of stuff. And I'm like, I don't think I'm in a lot of stuff. I do. I am curious about a lot of stuff. And, you know, Steve Jobs kept saying that he didn't keep saying that Stanford commencement addresses, you can connect the dots looking backwards. I'm a dot collector. And a lot of times it's just out of curiosity. I'm like, yeah, Hey, here's these set of dots here. And it may not be till a year or two or three years later that it's like, Ooh, those dots connect with these dots that connect with these dots. And I feel like other people have run past those dots. And the only thing, because I'm a hoarder of dots, (laughs) I'm able to connect (laughs) them and say, Oh, Hey, for this moment, why don't we try this? And you know, you get the mocks and you get the stares and you get the laughs, but there's something, I think the creative process is certainly a lot of dreaming, but it's more about a lot of editing, you know, and editing doesn't come natural. We want to be polished. Like, I don't want to share with you a song that I just wrote. Like, I'm proud of the song when I play it or if it's a piece of art, but Rob, Chris, Ian, if I share it with you, I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know if they're really going to fully understand the depth of what those words mean or what those lyrics mean or what the, what the artistry means within it. So I've always felt like collect the dots, but then where I think the difference is, is you've got to be really, really great at editing. And that's not, that doesn't come natural. You know, it can be demoralizing because people will say, well, you were here before and now you're saying it's this. Yeah, because I think initiatives that retain um, their sense of longevity or greatness over time, they tend to hold uh, an earthiness or simplicity as a core design value. Right. And I, I've worked with you guys, you know what this is about and, you know, your time at Apple and and the things that you've done in healthcare, it, it does become about simplicity. And going back to sport, when somebody's lost their way as an athlete, you know what a coach does? First thing they say is, hey, let's get back to basics. <laughs> so I think in any work that I've done before, I've just been brave enough to say, yeah, let's edit this down and get it to its core simplicity. And somehow fruit comes from that. Right. Along the lines of coaching, you know, you've, you've been able to interact and, and have relationships with a lot of the NBA coaches, you know, who stands out as a maverick for the future, as far as, you know, co-creation, what lesson have you learned that, you know, is meaningful to you from one of these coaches? I don't know if this is for the future as much as it is recent past, but I'm not necessarily a Golden State Warrior fan. I'm not against them. But Steve Kerr, uh, when he walked in there, he co-created with them. Right. You know, he understood who he had and he co-created with them because any standard coach, and I even think Mark Jackson before him, was open to the idea 
But I think Steve Kerr not just co-created, but said, committed, this is how we're going to play, right? And the example I could give you is like, if I were coaching, and this is why I don't coach in the NBA, but if I were coaching, I would tell Steph, hey, I like those nice shots you shoot from way out there, but right. those are low percentage. Can you can we design plays that get you closer? <laughs> right. I would have stunted Steph Curry's growth. <laughs> right. But there was something about what Steve saw in Steph and his ability that he said, we'll build around this. And then Clay and then Draymond Green. And then they brought KD in and you know, the way that that franchise is run, I feel like the, a prototype of what Steve Kerr has done. And if you go back to his history, he's not, he's a brave, brave man, no nonsense. Because if you understand the history of his father, Steve Kerr's dad died in Lebanon because of some terrorist attack or bombing or something like that. And so his whole career, Arizona, and to the Bulls and to the Spurs, there's some something that I keep saying earthiness, right? Those things don't just humble you. They give you some sense of grounding and substance that allow you to be the brave person you need to be to make a risk and saying, hey, listen, this is my first head coaching job. I should probably run the triangle offense that I learned from Bill Jackson. That's a safe bet. <laughs> I got a great shooter in Steph Curry. I just need to get somebody that appears to be like Michael Jordan and, you know, Scottie Pippen. And I can probably replicate success, you know, but he didn't. I think when you go through hard stuff or you go through stuff that challenges you in early days and roots you down to the ground, there's a soberness that you enter in with, with opportunity. So I, I think for those type of people, it's not a, oh, I'm a risk taker. And you kind of go in and you're Superman. It's more of an attitude of, I really want to steward this opportunity with what I've been given. It's just a clear mindedness about reality. That makes sense. There's a author that I begin reading her Instagram post, Brianna West. She has a a quote, I use it all the time now, but it says something along the lines of, if you want to romanticize the future, you'll make progress, you'll go far. But if you want to romanticize the present, you'll find freedom. And I think the freedom to just take life as it is and not worry about comparing or what people will say, I think those are the people that really get far. So part of what you were saying earlier about editing, I mean, I, I think of editing the past, right? Like, I think that's a big um, barrier to moving forward sometimes is the perception we have of our history, our past self, you know, the things that may have held us up. And I think being able to reframe your past, you know, like even having a negative boss or a negative experience with a boss that could, you could be bitter about that. Yeah. Or you can edit that situation and be like, you know what? I, I learned who I don't want to be as a leader. Yeah. You know, those are valuable lessons as well. It's, it's in the framing. It's in, the, in those edits. But I also find value in the concept of editing in the present in real time, right? Your, your frame of reference, yeah. your perspective in the moment yeah. too, or being grateful in the moment. Yeah. 
So I, I, I love that. Uh, I learned something um, from athletes in action where like, let me ask you guys, Hey Rob, um, where are you from? I'm from Utah originally. Chris, where are you from? California. Ian, where are you from? From California as well. Yeah. So that's great, right? Because people associate where they're from with the place and where you're from is the moments and the experiences that shaped you. That's where you're from. You're not from the geography in the sense of right. the brave core piece, because if that's the case and it looks like people on the West coast need to be brave <laughs> between you three, right? <laughs> right? It's not it. It's the, it's where you're from is, man, I was 11 year old playing football and basketball here and magic Johnson was coming up as a player. And then all of a sudden I'm in India drawing a bucket in the paper. There's only the sports page only has news about cricket. Like uh, it's, I couldn't hear anything about magic Johnson's early career when I was younger because I was stripped away from that. That's where I'm from. You know, I'm from when, when I'm in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as a young seven year old, I'm from uh, a bunch of kids who didn't know any better, but they called me chocolate milk. Um, uh, they called me Taco Bell um, and they called me chocolate chip. And I'm from that, but I'm also from in that moment when those young guys that were my friends, but they'd call me that the same, in the same moment, there's a young girl, Lori, who brought me a glazed donut, held my hand and didn't say a word. And so in the middle of chocolate chip and Taco Bell and everything else, I have a glazed donut to this day, Chris, if you put a glazed donut in front of me, I have an affinity and affection for glazed donuts that are rooted. To, that's where I'm from. So Ian, to answer your question is where you are from is not just the geography as part of where you're from, but where you're from, you need to keep, I wouldn't say editing your story. I would say synthesize your story. There you go. So I, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and athletes and I can say, Hey, listen, athletes, you want to be drafted? Great. But today, what'd you learn today? Let's synthesize that to who you are and how you go about your work and do that tomorrow. And there's compound interest on synthesizing that. I, I like that. I love that actually. Um, one of the themes too, you've talked about is this, uh, essentially, I mean, what's coming out is, you, you know, this round peg square hole. Right. And, and that's, that's the story in many ways. Right. So I, what I'm saying is, Hey, these are, these are these co-creative muscles, right. That involve some pain. Right. But they also say, Hey, there's this structure that society has built around us, right. That man has designed and it's inadequate, right. It doesn't work necessarily for the future. Right. And then you know, we see a guy like you, James, and it's like, you know, you're 30 years in the future. So you're seeing some of how those things connect or synthesize before others do. Right. And it may be a year or five or 10 years before they can even see it. The question I'm curious about is how have you taken people on that journey, right? Where maybe they don't see it, right. Or maybe they're in limbo. Maybe they're just feeling pain, right. And to Ian's point, maybe it's pain related to, Hey, they haven't edited enough or synthesized enough from their past, but also they don't necessarily see the connections towards the future. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's a really good question. I think that there's a saying that I have, and maybe I got it from somewhere else. Like I'm a, I'm kind of a synthesis of a lot of things. Sometimes I don't remember where it comes from. Sometimes it's original. And most of the time it's, I heard something from somewhere and now it's become mine. But um, there's something that I say to people like, that there's just going to have to be a trust and a con- deep conviction about what you're doing. And you're going to have to see the most clearest when your eyes are closed. There's a song that you too has that uh, it's walk on. It says, uh, Bono writes a line and says, you're packing for a place that has to be believed to be seen. And so there are some people that have to see to believe. And then there's a fewer people. They got to close their eyes. They have to believe to see. And so I don't think that, I think what you, the, the key is if you can gain trust and some deep conviction about something, whatever it is, then you have people around you. So when I was younger, I used to think, man, why is everybody, this concept about misfit, right? It's, it's really good and it's helpful. But what I learned when I was young was I was like, man, why is everybody against me? And what I did by saying, why is everybody against me in my head? Cause it was hard. It's like hard. Like I'm an Indian kid. I'm supposed to be an engineer, a pharmacist or a doctor. Here I am. I'm doing good in school. I'm doing good at work, but I'm chasing basketball and I'm chasing music and I'm chasing band. Like I'm the worst Indian kid role model for Indian parents ever (laughs) because I did good in business, but I also did good with sport and music. So they can't look at me and say, see him. He's the example of why you can't do that because I couldn't be that example. So in that, when I was younger, I just felt the weight of that. It's like, man, why do these parents and why do even family members like, why are they, why is everybody shunning me? But I learned early on that everybody wasn't against me. There was always at least one person. Remember I told you about the glazed donut. (laughs) So I could say, everybody's calling me chocolate milk. There wasn't, there was at least one person and she brought a glazed donut and she held my hand. So I don't think that success, like if you take the pressure off the term success, I think success isn't really something that happens to you because of your work and everything else. It is, that's a contribution, but it's not really that happens to because you earned it. It's, it's something that you attract because of the core principles and the core values that you bring to the table that is embedded in truth. And you've heard the term that truth sets you free. (laughs) So when you're able to combine accepting the realities of everything, you find freedom in that. But then if you combine that with truth and everlasting principles, um, I feel like then you start attracting success and you start attracting the things that other people admire and truly admire the hidden treasure that's in people that's covered by the success trap, the goodness of people find that person or that entity or that organization. And they're like, Hey, can I be around that person? (laughs) 
then all of a sudden you're not alone anymore. You got one person. Now you got five people. Now you got 10. You don't need everybody. You just need two or more is what I say. Right. Yeah. A lot of what you're, you're honing in on too, is this art of, right. The sense of this creative sensibility that is tied to the future. Right. And and not everybody sees this. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating too, right. Because we've been staring at this for a long time as a culture, globally and um you know like sir ken robinson's talk you know ted talk that's i think it's been the number one Mm. talk for a while Mm -hmm. about how schools kill creativity right right right? this is such a surprising thing that you know we've been preparing the the future capability for uh, objectives that are going to be irrelevant right Mm -hmm. people solving you know the one answer questions that ai can do Mm -hmm. right and so Mm -hmm. yeah um and yet there's all this untapped human potential for co-creation and now we're seeing it burst in the in the job market where i just read this or we just mit just put out a study yesterday that said you know people are the most frustrated not about uh you know pay or or, you know that's that's related but the reason why a lot they're leaving and it's like three Mm -hmm. orders of three to four x you know uh uh you know more the reason than any other reason Mm -hmm. is because of toxic cultures and essentially what they're saying is it's a rejection of these old structures and we want something different right something that and and we know you know the need because we see it in job descriptions is it's always infused somewhere is creativity you know collaboration how people work together you could call it you know steve young is called like the athletic age you're you're implying that is like how teams work how people work together yeah and there's this whole notion of like how creativity works. I know you've done some or quite a bit of, I mean, that's your story. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's examples I've heard from you, you know, like with Google mm-hmm. where these, these things, you know, not necessarily as a workaround to bring the art into it, but where, you know, you might show up and, and a traditional thing would be like, let's do a team building. Right. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about it. Let's articulate. And we're going to just say the word trust or, collaboration enough times until we until we're doing it right and that's just not real yeah and so but if you show up and you're like and you've done this um hey let's let's create a song together Mm -hmm. right and that i mean so i'm curious like your experiences you know either that is a specific example or others where you've seen the magic of that yeah and then maybe also yeah, and similar to that theme too of carrying people along that journey. Yeah, but what it did, yeah, right, because it seems like it's also that you know that catalyzing force, right, yeah. that unlocks things that people don't even like. You know, they don't even know their own humanity. Like, is is so eager for it, yeah. right? Like, it's yeah. the unspoken in their subconscious that, and then it hits, and it's like, whoa, this is a different thing that's happening now. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I can tell you, um, I know, I know exactly the stories you're talking about. Um, Two parts of it is one from a corporate side, you know, um, India is a rising economy and we're living there and we're seeing beautiful, like the India that's there today, I would live in today. Like and I did, I did for a long time. Um, the India I moved to when I was younger, like I won't run away from it. Like <laughs> it's two different places. And uh, with big companies moving in like LinkedIn, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, a- anybody who's in Silicon Valley probably has a large presence in India right now. And it's grown a middle class. And what's happened is 
in India, if you don't understand the hierarchy of culture that's based on old Hindu uh, traditions, there's a, there's a caste system, right? So if, if you're a vice president at, let's say, Google, and you're a low caste person, and now a high caste person is a director under you, that director, like their very fiber cannot, because of the way culture is, there was some of that going on where the director is high caste, the VP is low caste, but the VP is the boss. Now the, the low caste person is telling the high caste person what to do. It was a mess. <laughs> and the early companies that built big companies and grew rapidly there didn't understand what was happening. Like work wasn't being done. Simple work wasn't being done. And they didn't understand the dynamics that was happening there. So uh, we were able to go into that environment and use music and or sport even, but music to say, hey, uh, let's write a song. You don't have to be a musician. You don't have to um, be a songwriter. But if you enjoy music, let's get everybody in the room on Monday. No song exists, but through a process that was born out of human-centered design, by day four, you get that group to write a song and you have them acknowledge the realities of their world within the song, but also a pathway to overcome it. The, the specific example I'll give you is in Mumbai, there's this widely known, there's a red light district, right? So you can walk in and prostitutes have their little houses in the red light district in the slums and they have badges saying, I just got my lab test done, I'm HIV free. And it's, it's terrifyingly, it's awful, the whole atmosphere there. But sometimes these women, they get pregnant. They don't know who the father is. But there's an organization, I won't name them, but they have seen the problem of young babies being born to these women who sell their bodies during the day and night. And they become a nuisance to that woman's craft, which is prostitution, right? So they come in with the permission of the mother. They take the young kid to a place about four or five hours away where they built homes. So instead of a dorm room or an orphanage, they built homes with eight bedrooms in it that has a parent and the kids and the other kids that are transported there have a parent in the home with other siblings, new siblings now, but they all go to a school. So these kids are educated in a safe setting far away. They still know who their mom is. We were invited to come teach the kids how to co-create and write a song together. And um, this is part of the Elevate X, which is the organization that we founded to do these type of things around sport, music, and entrepreneurship. Sean and Tammy Samuel um, really worked hard on figuring out how to go from Monday to Thursday from no song with no musicians and no songwriters to on Friday performing a song that did not exist on Monday. And the human-centered design nature of the co-creation process dictated that we had to have the kids confront the reality that they were children of prostitutes. They knew it. Everybody else knew it. But it was the elephant in the room that nobody would say. We'd all kind of walk around it, right? But Sean and Tammy... And my one song team, which was the Elevate X initiative, they found a way 
to have people say, yeah, this is who I am, but hmm, there's a way I can overcome it. And you know what the lyrics of the song say is, I once walked in the shadows of the night, but now I see the light. (laughs) Rise up, rise up. My peace is your peace. My joy is your joy. My victory is your victory. So whether it's corporate (laughs) or whether it's children who you give no chance to, like your mom's a prostitute. You don't even know your dad is. Wait, you're saying that you're going to rise up and you're offering me your peace and your joy and your victory and that you have a chance for a new life? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah, so the co-creation process is not just for building products. It's for integrating a future. Let me ask you guys a question here. So all of this stuff that's happened the last three years, right? It just feels like God's flushing the toilet bowl and saying, get down in that sewer, guys. Like life is this bad, right? It's the racial stuff, the division of politics and opinions, religious stuff. Like if you close your eyes and predict the future, what do you see? I'll take a stab at If we were to go like or be somewhat analogous to the experience that you shared about those kids. And I've seen that video and it's moving like deeply. I mean, even just talking about it. It's, um, you know, for people to, uh, to, to experience darkness, um, on a deep level, it's, I mean, that's pain, right? And we all have some measure of pain in our lives. My dad, uh, his dad was an alcoholic. And, uh, but he made a definitive decision in his life that he wouldn't, he wouldn't be that. And that, that changed the course of the lives of, you know, all, me and my, you know, three brothers, three sisters. And the catalyzing power that we have, like the, the potential energy that's inside of us to make change and to bring light right into whatever situation that we're given uh, is immense, right? And Martin Luther King Jr., right? In his speech, part of it was extemporaneous. Actually, the best part of the speech, the I have a dream portion, he was writing that in his moments of preparation. As, Ten minutes prior. Right? So yeah. it, it was unfinished. His actual talk would not have had that those inspirational words that have been foundational, right? Like that's the, that's what people talk about. And, and in the moment when he was sharing and, you know, and he does this mad, like masterfully and, and, and it's, and, and, you know, he's in, in a kind of a prophetic way really is laying out, here's the real, right? Here are the struggles that we are facing in the world at that time. And they are unbelievably horrendous, right? Horrific. And he had experienced many of those himself right? Been jailed, been persecuted, been, you know, and yet he paints this inspirational ideal of the future that is still unfulfilled, right? I mean, a convergence of all the children of God, right? Judged on the content of our character and it's a beautiful future. So he's, he's holding these things together and it's this beautiful tension that says, Hey, there's a bridge. We've got to build the bridge. And in that moment, then there was a lady uh, in his core team he, he, he wasn't going to share those words, right? He wrote, he wrote them down and she says to him in the moment, tell him about the dream, Martin. And if we, if we watch the video, like you can hear this, it's a very, you know, it's slight thing. Tell him about the dream. Mm-hmm. And 
that's when he goes into the eye of a dream. No way, really? I thought about this myself. Wow. Yeah. So, I, and I, I thought about this, right? Where it's like, and I've wondered, honestly, too, whether that was like, if that was also a, an actual dream, right? And whether at night and he's had, you know, a dream or something he saw, right? In, 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 as a vision, right? And in, 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 while he's awake, but a dream of something that could be. And I think that's where we have to go, right? So the future depends on that for us personally. And as you said, how we bring people into that world and synthesize. I mean, the beauty is, is like, we also have some of the most talented people in the history of the world, right? We have all these skill sets. We have all these, these abilities, right? Superpowers, like you said, to converge and to build uh, things together that can, that can infuse more hope and, uh, and, and lead us into, right. I mean, whether it's the advancement of technology, which in many ways will happen on its own, but Hey, what, what could happen if we converge, right? Principles, timeless principles and technology, right. And what can happen if we converge inspiration and revelation and truth with work? You know, Chris, um, when I hear what you just said, and I already, when I asked you the question, what do you see into the future with all this division and war and pandemic? And if I were to close my eyes and look into the future, based even upon what you just said, I would say this because like you just said, I see the future in my living room. I have a 23-year-old son, Michael, a 22-year-old daughter, Gabby, and a 20-year-old daughter, Danielle. And I see them navigating through all this stuff and they are navigating it with good, tender hearts, but curious minds and a conviction trying to sort what is good and right. So when I close my eyes, I'm not reading stuff. I see them. When I close my eyes, I see a generation that is not going to allow themselves to be divided. <laughs> that is going to give opportunity. If you want the opportunity, you can have access to the opportunity. You're going to have to work for it, but you can have the opportunity. I see a generation ahead that is not going to allow the polarization and the fragments that we feel hit by today. They're not going to allow it. There's going to be some things they're going to have to work on because you can't allow everything. <laughs> Like everything's not good just because somebody wants to do it. There has to be some structure around what is good and what is right and what is wrong and what is evil. But I just see a generation that's not going to allow um, the polarization to stop them from things. And they're, and they're running away from institution, right? They don't trust government. They don't trust big business. They don't trust faith-based institutions, whether it's a church or the temple or the mosque, they're, they're trying to find their own truth. <laughs> and that's why these principles that you guys have with Brave Corps matters because, uh, you know, it's, they, they need some earthiness and, and groundedness to that. I, when you talk about Martin Luther King and conviction, what I, what I really feel is conviction is like they need some conviction. It can't just be everything. It has, there has to be some conviction. I met about three weeks ago. I don't know if I told you guys this or not. In Nashville, uh, there's, a, there's a gentleman who's known as Daddy Brown. Um, and he grew up uh, near Jackson, Mississippi in the 50s as a 
as a black African-American kid growing up in the 50s and 60s. And this is what he told me. This is about three weeks ago. Like I'm sitting at this barbecue place with him there and we're trying to talk about sport and opportunities like that. And I just asked the curious questions like, tell me what your journey has been like in life. This is what he said. He was in the living room in a house with other people when as an 18 year old or 19 year old, when Martin Luther King Jr. walked into the living room. And this, I have a dream speech that was said in front of thousands of people. He's talked about something in the living room just as passionately with just as much deep conviction. And it inspired Daddy Brown. And you know what he said after he heard it? I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, oh, did you go out and change the world? He goes, no. You know what I felt after I heard that man speak? I was inspired. I knew what he was speaking was true. But the first thing I thought about is if I follow what this man just said, if we follow in the living room what this man just said, we're going to die tonight. And they went out and marched. <laughs> you know, so that's what I see the next generation saying, being very clear about what's worth dying for, what's worth arguing and you know, there are differences, but yeah, that's okay. So I, I really learned a lot that night because I'm like, man, I don't know if I was 19 years old and I even heard, but now we know Martin Luther King, Dr. King in the way we know him looking back, but in the moment in the fifties and sixties, when you could get shot at and when you could have a bomb be put under your porch and you're like, do you really want to follow this guy? Do you really want to march? Like, are you going to die tonight because of something you heard and believed in? Like, I think that's being brave, right? And, and, and the, the core of being brave is that conviction that there's, there's something in the world that I need to step out for that doesn't necessarily has to be that it, cost you your life, but it's going to cost you. <laughs> so I think that's the point is like, I think these kids are going to come out of this. Like those kids that I said were children of prostitutes. I think they're going to come out with the conviction. Yeah. Hey, I was in the shadow, but there's light ahead. Let's rise up. Let's go. I'll give you some of my peace and joy. That's co-creation. I'll, I'll share some of my peace and joy, even though I don't have a lot. Come on, let's go. That's co-creation. This episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen, with support from my co-hosts and BraveCore founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. Special thanks to James Matthews for the conversation today and for reminding us that being brave has a cost, but that helping others rise up is worth the price. Also, we really appreciate you for taking the time to co-create these conversations with us, especially when there are so many other things you could be doing. If you found any value at all in these episodes, could you do a favor, leave us a rating, even a review, wherever you're listening right now? It takes about two minutes and helps others discover the show as well. 
If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at Brave Core, you can check out our website at bravecore.co. The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of Brave Core LLC. Thanks for being with us.